0: Welcome back to part two of the Musicians of the Midnight Sun podcast interview with Bill Gilday. Beautiful story.
1: So anyway, I didn't know how to deal with that because like, I was only like 23 or something. And I was obviously uh, you know, enchanted with Cindy. And yet, here I am. I've got to go back to London and I'm due to teach at a music camp for three weeks in the end of July. And I've got my orchestra gig coming back and... You know, coming up again in the fall and all my bands I'd be returning to. And so while I was at this music camp teaching kids, it was concert band music. I got a letter from Cindy. So there started a letter writing exchange that went on until Christmas, at which point I had invited her to come down to Ontario over her school break. She was completing her degree in education at U of A. So she came down at Christmas, and we had two, well, 10 days together. We had only had three days together prior to that. And then after writing all those letters, we had 10 days. And then she went back to university, and I went back to my gigs and my orchestra. And at the end of May, when the orchestra played its last concert, I had my bags packed, and I was going north. I I wasn't going to write letters forever. I came up to Yellowknife. And I stayed with Evelyn Nind and her family. They put me up so that I could find some work and then maybe hitchhike out to Edzo on the weekends because Cindy was teaching at the school there. And uh, so I half-heartedly looked for work for a few days and didn't find anything. And then I hitchhiked down the highway on like Thursday afternoon or something in my first week. And a guy called George McCallum picked me up. He was from uh, Edzo. And so he gave me a ride to the school. I told him where I wanted to go. And he dropped me off at the school where Cindy was teaching. That was the chief Jimmy Bruno school in Edzo. And uh, I went into the school office and I bumped into Dan who who I'd met the year before when I was staying in Fort Ray. And he was the principal and they were just planning on this new school over in Edzo anyway i went over to dan and i said remember me and i don't suppose you got any work for a guy like me he said go see that guy over there so i went and saw big bob bob bates i don't know if he ever ran into bob and uh so i told bob what what i was about and how i I had come to uh, spend time with cindy and hopefully get some work he said when can you start i said when do you want me to start he said after school today (laughs) you are going to be the recreation director for the kids who stay in the residence because the guy who was doing that, I fired him yesterday. (laughs) So anyway, I had about 20 kids, oh, from probably grade three to grade eight staying in the residence there under the care of house parents. The Cleachow had their own house parents there. And then I would have to provide activities either indoors or out, depending on the weather. So that's what I did for the next um, month. I guess it was only about a month because school would have ended at the end of June. And in the evenings, I would go and spend time with Cindy. And it was during that time we decided to get married. And uh, I said, look, I have to go back to Ontario to do the music camp again. I'd made a commitment to that. And then let's set a date to get married and I need to go up to Delaney and visit your family and get your father's permission to marry because at that time I was a member of the Baha'i faith and one of the rules was you had to get the permission of all natural living parents in order to get married so uh, I, I did I returned in the middle of August and I flew to Norman Wells and Cindy and her dad had come down the Bear River and then down the Mackenzie to Norman Wells. They had taken two days to get there and stopped in Fort Norman overnight because uh, one of her dad's, well, his dad's brother and his wife lived in Fort Norman. And uh, anyway, they picked me up and then we took a boat ride back to Delaney. And again, it was a two-day trip in a probably a 18-foot aluminum boat with about a 40-horse motor, and um, stayed overnight in Fort Norman. So anyway, on to Delaney, and wow, what a, what a time that was. I spent 10 days with Joe Kenny, traveling in his boat to set nets and collect the fish and boat trip down the little river to go up into the hills and cut logs for some houses that he was wanting to build. So cutting and stripping logs and then carrying them all the way down to the river you know, he was in his 60s and here I am, this 24-year-old, just like I was really struggling and he, you know, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Same thing with the fish. When we were taking the fish out of the nets, my hands would last in the water for maybe 10 seconds before I'm breathing on them and putting them in my armpits. He never once did that, any of that. guy had, you know, veins, his large veins, no problem with cold water.
0: Wow, that's amazing. It's almost like a whole other education happening there. I mean, that that's yeah, another part of yeah, it too. It was. I mean, you, you'd spent time in Ray, uh, you know, the, the, the summer before and stuff, so maybe not so quite hands-on and all the rest of that stuff, but still.
1: Well, that was a good cultural experience yes. because it was treaty days, and they had people in from all the communities, and they had this huge drum dance, uh. like, you know, with like a couple of hundred people, and... They started off by having a double circle of going around and shaking hands. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those. Mm -hmm. And so I shook everybody's hand, including Joe Kenny. That's where I met Cindy's dad. And then learning to, you know, be in a drum dance. The difference between drum dances then and now is back then everybody sang. It was so powerful. And, you know, I I was really moved by that. And now when I go to a drum dance most of the people don't know the songs and they're not singing in many of the communities so uh, anyway that was a formative experience to hear the power of the drum dance and the singing that goes along with it
0: and I'm also sort of thinking I mean as you reflecting back to what you were talking about when you were a young lad and out taking your bow and arrow out into the bush and here you were like it was uh, you're <laughs> stepping right into a, a novel of, of some kind that way so yeah amazing, amazing full circle there for sure Yep. So from Delanay and that experience what happened next?
1: Well, the the big thing that happened was the day that I was leaving Delaney, I got up the courage to ask Joe Kenny for permission to marry his daughter. And you know what he said? What did he say? He said in his well, in his broken English, he said if you marry my daughter, you stay here. And I go, "Oh, there goes my music career." <laughs> So I said, okay. Wow. Uh, I said, okay, Joe, I can do that. And uh, so we went and got married in September and attended the U of A because it was decided that I would get my teacher certificate, finish those courses in that would enable me to be a teacher, and she would finish her degree, and then we would try to get a job back up north, which we did. So anyway, during that year, 1972-73, that's when I heard, about Tommy Bank's band and I went and I checked to see if that's something that I could get into. Well, turns out they needed a second trombone (laughs) player. And uh, so I went down to the union and I went and saw what's his name? Eddie Baines. The union, Eddie Baines. (laughs) Still there. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So I went and I talked to Eddie and I told him who I was and I said, look, I, I, I know you've got a residency requirement of six months or a year or something, but Tommy Banks really needs a trombone player, and I really would like to play, and I've, I'm i the man for the job. I've got the experience. So he said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll waive the requirement because right now I don't think there are any trombone players that Tommy could hire. So – You go and see Tommy and see, you know, if he'll hire you on. So I did, and I had to go see Harry Pynchon. So anyway, Harry was the contractor for Tommy's band, and he said, look, um, in order for me to hear you out, to make sure you're up to snuff to play in the band, I want you to come down to the Cosmopolitan band rehearsal um, Tuesday night or something, and I'll, I'll have a listen to you then. You can sit in with the band as we rehearse all concert band music so i did i went i played famously and he said hey man you're good okay you're on so i got the gig playing with tommy banks band for the year and they would do one show a month in the uh what's it called the student union building at the theater there so i got the second trombone gig and big miller was their opening act so anyway the band would start to play before tommy's guests would come on so we're going to warm up the audience and big miller would come out and he'd start singing and so we'd play a couple of tunes and he'd sing and then he would chatter between songs and laugh with the audience and get them all worked up and then after he was done we'd go on with the show and then tommy's guests would come on and we would play and then another guest would come on and Wow. Good singer, then. Oh. Good singer.
0: Entertainer. Uh, yeah, just, just yes. a, a monster. I mean, he was legend. I sort of followed you down to Edmonton 10 years after that, and that's when I got a chance to play with him. And he came up here a couple of times to play uh, the commissioner's ball gigs or something like that. Is that and, uh, uh oh. would bring some Edmonton musicians and, you know, cut the cost and all the rest of that stuff. And there's a bass player who could, who could do the, the gig up here and stuff. Um <laughs> quick question because just for me one of the one of the guys that sort of hold near to dear to my heart was a guy named Bobby Stroop who was a, a trombone player as well. Um not sure if he was part of Tommy's band at that time.
1: I don't think he was okay. and I, I certainly heard the name but I've never met Bob Stroop.
0: Yeah. No, he was a, a real gentleman and uh remember I, I got to play with Tommy once and that was in in, mm-hmm. a, in a barn outside of Edmonton mm-hmm. and uh um, I didn't know how to tie a tie. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and so... Bobby, Bobby could see this happening. He was such a sweet, sweet guy. And he just sort of came up and he goes, okay, here, Pat, it's like this. <laughs> so, here's the simplest one. And there you go, you're, there you go, you're tip top. you're ready to play now. And, uh, again, those guys were princes, you know, uh, gentlemen. And, uh, uh, that, that for me was, uh, was just, a uh, um, a huge part of it, I guess, was just that professional part of it, getting dressed up in the suit and uh, looking good and, and, and playing the parts and um, all the rest of that. It was that, that was a real driving force with me. So that's really cool that there's that common uh, person that way in Tommy Banks and, and just some of those guys because, again, like I say, 10 years later, those were the guys that I was bumping into as well. You were taking education courses there in that year that you were there. And, and, right. and playing with Tommy Banks and, uh, and all the rest of that stuff. Was there interaction within the musical faculty and at the university?
1: Yeah, I also played in the um, Symphonic Wind Ensemble with Malcolm Forsyth. He, Malcolm Forsyth was teaching at U of A. He was a composer and a trombonist and lecturer. And so I auditioned for that and I got in. And that's where I met David Hoyt you probably met over the years. He's come up here a few times with his French horn. So there were mostly students in that wind ensemble. I don't remember there being any of the faculty members. Well, maybe I should let you jump in there and see if there's any gap you want to fill in.
0: You talked about your last year in college, university, in the choir program. Was there any of that happening at U of A um, that that you were able to, to be a part of?
1: I wasn't part of anything. I would imagine that Leonard Ratzlaff was doing his thing at that time with uh, the university mixed choir. And there's a guy called Bob DeFries who had a come All ye student choir. And he kept that going for many years. You know, he, he might still be there. But no, I didn't get involved with the choir community. I was just in the education program, learning instruments and playing with the Banks band. And Spending the rest of the, my time with Cindy. Yeah.
0: No, it sounds like a wonderful way to spend a year in, in Edmonton. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you ended up getting your your degree.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, um, when Cindy's dad said you have to live here, did he mean specifically in in uh, in, in Delaney or or
1: he mentioned in the, the north. north?
0: Okay, <laughs> there you
1: go. Yeah, and his reasoning was, and he explained this to Cindy, and she explained it to me, was that he had seen. Too many of the girls marry white guys and go away and never come back, and he didn't want that to happen to him. Yeah, so I honored that, and um, so at the end of the Edmonton year, both of us got offered teaching positions at Jimmy Bruno School. Me as a grade five and music teacher, and Cindy as a grade one teacher. She could speak Clichon, so that's why they hired her to teach there. So that was probably the toughest transition in my life to have to go from my life as a musician to (laughs) as a life as a music teacher in a indigenous community where half the kids could hardly speak english so that was that was a bit of a shift and um what i remember about that was it was really hard on me at first and it didn't take me long probably maybe three months where i kind of looked myself in the mirror and said look Stop making yourself miserable and feeling sorry for yourself. Just try to enjoy it and work hard and do your best. And it turned me right around. Then I started to enjoy my teaching and communicate with the kids a lot better. And um, I I was teaching music and I was teaching ukulele, recorder and guitar and singing. So I had a lot of fun with that. And I still get these 50-something kids on the street of Yellowknife saying hey I remember you Mr. Gilday you taught me how to play the guitar (laughs) that kind of stuff right so there's a lot a lot of kids that that learned guitar in my classes there so that went on for six years we stayed in Edsel her dad died in 1978 and I did not then feel obligated to stay in the north uh, if I wanted to try something in the south So I asked Cindy how she'd feel about moving down Edmonton Way to see if I could get in the Edmonton Symphony and maybe get some other gigs. So we did. We moved to Morinville, where I got a job in Bon Accord, which is a 15-minute drive out of Morinville, teaching kindergarten to grade 8, music and math. Well, math was just the junior high ages. So um, that was my first experience teaching band. You
0: were in Ray for what years? You said six years from...
1: Okay, Yeah, that was from 73 to 79. Okay, And then we moved to Morinville in 79 and stayed only two years. Uh, the reason we left there was not because I was unhappy teaching there, but Cindy was really unhappy living there. No lakes, no fish, no caribou. She just was not happy. By then we had two kids. We had Leela and Jay was born... And Carla, actually, Carla was born there in our, my last year there. So we had three kids and she's at home. And, you know, just like, you know, the proverbial fish out of water, she just was not happy. Understandable, kids. yeah, for sure. <laughs> Hot and dry Alberta without <laughs> any lakes to go to. Yeah,
0: for sure. So did you seek a job out back north or did one one sort of go get...
1: That's a very interesting, this is another serendipitous thing that happened. We talked about, maybe trying to get a job down in Ontario where my folks lived so we could spend a little time with them and let them see the grandchildren. And I got offered a job in Lucan, which is the home of the Black Donnellys. And um, Lucan is about a 20-minute drive from where my parents were living out in the country there. So I thought that would be perfect. And then after I got the job offer and I accepted it, the guy phoned me back. The next day, the superintendent phoned me back and said, "By the way, um, you've got your Ontario teacher's certificate, right?" And I said, "Nope, I got Alberta's." And then he said, "Oh, okay. Well, problem. You're going to have to come down here uh, in the summer and enroll at the teachers' college here and get your certification from Ontario, because I can't offer you the job without Ontario certification." And then I, what I said to him was. Well, you know what, I, I've started a summer music program uh, at the University of Calgary to learn the Kodai method of education. And it's what I really want to do, because I, I realized when I was teaching band in Morinville that I needed some way of teaching, well, not just band, but classroom music, too. I felt like I was always grasping at straws and kind of inventing things. I didn't have a sort of a clear direction. And I had a friend teaching in Edmonton that I'd gone to Western with, and she was a Kodai instructor. So I I visited her a few times, and her husband was my composition professor, Alfred Fisher. And so she talked to me about this Kodai program, and she said, Bill, you should really, really consider that. And she said, Lois Choksi will be coming up to Edmonton once a month to give an evening class for teachers who might be interested to check it out. So I did that, and I got turned on to the idea of learning the Kodai pedagogy. And so I told John Barron, the superintendent, I said, John, I can't accept your offer because I need to go to Calgary instead of coming to your teacher's college. um, I need to go to Calgary and get this Kodai thing underway, and I've got a job offer in Yellowknife to teach at a school there. So I turned him down. And uh, so one – uh, interesting thing about his turning me down because of the teacher certificate was I was telling the NWT Jim Walker certification guy this story years later and he said let me check that out so he checked it out and he came back and he said he was wrong you did not have to have the Ontario teacher certificate that must have been you know some bee in his bonnet and he wanted you to do that but he said by the regulations you could have gone there with just Alberta wow <laughs> So anyway, that's how come we ended up coming to Yellowknife and me taking a job at Mildred Hall. Now, meanwhile, back in Calgary, a couple of interesting things started to happen there. One of the courses I took was the history of Canadian folk music. And once I got into that stuff, I I really enjoyed it. And when I came back to Yellowknife, I got together with uh, Jack Waddell and Dave Speakman, a couple of choir guys from the United Church. and I asked them if they'd be interested in learning to sing some traditional Canadian folk music if I do the arrangements. Well, yeah, sure. So I started arranging songs, which was easy for me to do. And um, we would rehearse over at my place. Remember the old brown house beside Northern United Place on Franklin Avenue that got torn down a few years ago? Yes, I do.
0: Yeah,
1: that was where we lived. And and, uh, Jack lived in Nordic Arms, and Dave lived down on con road anyway they'd come over to my place once a week and stay for a couple hours and we started learning all these folk songs just for fun and uh pretty soon a guitarist came along by the name of rodney davies and he joined in with singing and playing guitar i was playing guitar too not very well but i, I played the guitar in the early gumbo ears and um so the Gumboots were born out of that experience from, with folk music at the University of Calgary. And another thing that I really got turned on to was children's choirs. That's a big part of the Kodai music education. So when I came to Mildred Hall, right away, I started choirs. And I had a grade 2-3 choir and a grade four, five, six choir every year there. And each choir usually had between 60 and 80 kids in it. wow <laughs> I put on big concert at Christmas and spring. So that was a big thing for my musical development was learning how to direct choirs. And I loved it, I really enjoyed that. Um, And then uh, the Kodai pedagogy really served me well. It's what guided me through all of my teaching and it made so much sense. Um, It was a, a music literacy program. You teach kids to sing, that's the basis of it. You make it fun by playing lots of musical games. They can hear what the notes are after they've been trained, and then they can write them down because they've been trained to do the rhythm and the melody, and then they can sight read them. You can throw a new song up at kids who can do this, and they can sight read it, um, never having seen that song before. So that's what you know. That's what learning to read music is all about.
0: Brilliant. You were there for a long time. I mean, you're
1: yeah, 1981 to 98, and I took. Um, it took a year off. That was a significant thing to do, too. Um, let's see. In about 1986, I wrote a musical for the kids at Mildred Hall called Trying Out. And um, it was a full-blown kids' musical that I, we put on at NAC. And Lilo was the big lead in that show. And then I knew about the Toronto Children's Chorus just through having been in music education. And I checked to see if it would be possible for Leela to audition for the Toronto Children's Chorus. And then if she were accepted, um, I would apply for a leave of absence. I had gone on the four over five program, which is where you you get paid 80% of your salary for four years, and then you can take a fifth year off without being penalized. So Leela went down with Cindy on a business trip and set up an audition with the director of the Toronto Children's Chorus, a lady called Jean Ashworth Bartle. And uh, so Lila was successful with her audition and we accepted and we arranged to move to Ontario for a year. So uh, got us a nice place out in Etobicoke and spent the year there. And so that was a big education for me. I don't know if you remember the Yellowknife Youth Choir, but it it was born out of my experience with the Toronto Children's Chorus. She allowed me to go to the rehearsals and observe, and then she had a summer, a mandatory summer music camp for new choir members or for all incoming choir members in August to prepare them uh, to do some vocal training and to prepare the repertoire because it was a high-level choir. They were singing, you know, four-part harmony, challenging music all the time, and they were expected to really know their stuff. So, I went to that training camp and I went to her rehearsals. And when I came back to Yellowknife, I decided, you know what? I want a choir like that. I know that it's a smaller population and it's probably not going to be as good, but I'm going to give it a try. So I started the Yellowknife Youth Choir in about 1988 with about 20 kids. And I started it in like October and um kids like Jennifer Steven and Carrie Stilwell and uh, Don Stilwell, Leela, I don't know, a bunch of kids who'd been in my Mildred Hall choirs. And um, we learned some Christmas repertoire and uh, then carried on with spring. And then I held auditions in the fall and had my first full year with the Yellowknife Youth Choir and carried that on for 10 years. So that was another big part of my life in Yellowknife was 10 years of Two rehearsals a week from September to June, uh, every Wednesday and Sunday afternoon from 4 to 5.30. And we learned tons of fantastic repertoire. And the kids just loved it. They really did. Like, I couldn't believe that, you know, they would come out on a Sunday afternoon when their families were going to the cottage and they would come to choir rehearsal because they just loved it. Some of the former members do contact me once in a while and say, wow, I'll never forget that choir and, you know, the music we learned. It was a fantastic experience. Oh, yeah. So that whole Mildred Hall period was a busy time. It was the Gumboots. It was the Yellowknife Youth Choir and my uh, junior high school band program. I actually started that band program after a trip to Calgary. I took my choir to the Kiwanis Music Festival in Calgary. And we had raised enough money that that I had a a nest egg of about $12,000 left over. And so I went to the principal and I said, you know, it would be really nice if we could have a band program at Mildred Hall in addition to my classroom music program. And he said, yeah, let's go for it. So I was able to buy a set of musical instruments to outfit a whole class. And I started the program at 7.30 in the morning three days a week they couldn't put it in the school day for me at the beginning so i you know toughed it out in the bitter cold and got the band program up and running in that first year and then the second year they put it right in the school day and so for the last several years at Miller home i was able to have a junior high band program
0: so through through all of your uh children's choirs and junior high school music programs and taking a year off to give Lila the opportunity to be with the Toronto Children's Chorus. Was the was the gumboots, did, were you able to sort of keep that going or dropping in on that? Or did you have to sort of leave it behind through all of those really sort of, I guess, busy years?
1: No, I kept it going. Uh, the only time I dropped it was the year I moved to Toronto and the guys kept it going. Um, by then there was Bill Stephen on guitar and singing John Bunga singing I can't remember if Dan Lee had joined the group by then I don't think so so anyway when I came back from Toronto the guys had kept it going and it was a basic folk repertoire influenced a little bit more by Bill Steven who was interested in the folk music of the 60s so they were they were playing a bunch of songs and they didn't really have arrangements of those so they just kind of, they would wing it and they'd harmonize. Um, so when I came back, uh, started rehearsals again and kind of solidified the group with membership with Chris Potts, Dan Lee, um, Bob McCory, John Bunga, myself, basically six guys. And I, I started arranging all the music in mostly four-part harmony, occasionally three parts. And... We would rehearse on Saturday mornings and while not all the guys were that strong at reading music, they were pretty quick at picking it up by ear if they couldn't fully read the music. Like Bob McQuarrie couldn't really read music, but he was good at picking it up by ear. Anyway, we worked really hard at, at, uh, (laughs) honing these four part arrangements and getting into Norm's studio and recording them. And then, um, Something happened in 1990 that really changed the direction of the gumboots. There was a nightly news program, and the broadcaster was the famous Barbara Frum with CBC. And one night I was listening to her broadcast, and she had a guy on the radio from Coppermine named Billy Adamack. And uh, this guy told his story of how he had gone out spring hunting with his snowmobile, got caught on the wrong side of the river when the ice broke up and spent two weeks trying to find a way to cross the river. His his snowmobile had broken down, ran out of gas or something. And then long story short, he ends up making it back to town in two weeks where he found that they had given him up for dead. They'd had a memorial service. His wife had sold his traps and So, I don't know if you ever heard the song called The Resurrection of Billy Adamack.
0: Oh, yes. But
1: but I got on the phone with Bob and I told him about this story. And he said, All right, well, I'll see what I can do. Because I knew that, you know, he was really strong with poetry and literature Mm -hmm. and stuff. So, anyway, the very next day, he presents to me the lyrics for The Resurrection of Billy Adamack. I worked on the music for a few days, took it to a gumboot rehearsal. We learned it. They recorded it, got it to CBC, and they put it on the radio. And so...
0: Question, was that the first original song? Uh, were it you, was. Re, it was, eh? That, so it that was the
1: first. And that's when I thought, okay, there must be lots of material out there that we can start writing our own material. So we did. And uh, so it turns out that Chris Phil Potts was a strong songwriter, and he contributed a number of songs to the repertoire, along with, usually with Bob's lyrics. Bob did 95% of the lyric writing for the Gumboots. Um, Bill Steven tried his hand at a few songs with Bob's lyrics. Rich Hints came along a little later, and Ray Bethke. Ray really took up the songwriting in the last album. He wrote half the songs on the last album that the Gumboots did, that Road's Less Traveled.
0: And obviously, as you say, there's sort of a, a wealth of epic Canadiana stories that could be drawn through history and all the rest of that stuff. Northern. Theme. Yeah, Bob
1: was a history teacher, so he <laughs> really knew his stuff, and he could, you know, he could <laughs> yeah. put together a great set of lyrics about Matonaby and John Hornby and Crowfoot and uh, all these sailors that came through the Northwest Passage. And he, he really had an amazing way of, you know, pulling all that material together and putting it in a three four minute song.
0: You guys really hit your stride, I remember, through those years. How many albums did you guys record? Four. Four albums, wow.
1: Yeah. Spirit of the North, Northern Tracks, Search for a Passage, it was called, and then uh, Roads Less Traveled. And then after that was over, the fire was going out for me a little bit. I, I kind of, like Bob, was long gone from the, the band, so I didn't really have a lyric writer anymore. And it was Steve Lacey and um, Ray Bethke were in the group at the time. And I called them for coffee over at the, the coffee shop and I put it to them. I said, I feel that it's a good time to call it quits. We've had a good run of many years and the, the numbers of people showing up at our annual concert was slipping. And I thought, you know what? Let's just stop while we're ahead here. And, you know, say we had a good run. So we we quit about I don't know, six, seven years ago. About I would say it was about then, yeah.
0: Twenty fifteen. And so your your run would have lasted gosh, that's uh if it was nineteen ninety that you first recorded the resurrection of Billy Adamac, I mean that's ten that's twenty five years. That's a hell of a run. Yeah,
1: yeah. The group <laughs> lasted about twenty five years.
0: Wow, that's an incredible run. You owe uh you know that that band that legacy like nothing really if you if you have that much of a run for me it's like five or six years if you have that much of a run you're doing amazing by 25 wow that's like the rolling stones you're were through the rolling stones of northern canada
1: yeah well well remember i got in with drunken forest there and that lasted all of two years i think yes. yeah. guys started leaving town so the band pretty well gave it up that was a fun gig
0: yeah, yeah. Some of them are shorter lived than all the rest of that stuff. But again, it's the chemistry that that happens with that group. And you nail that sort of uh, focus of what the group's about. And it just, it gels and you move with it. And uh, six years can go by in no time. Yep. So yeah, you guys really hit it there for sure. And another legacy, a huge chapter of time in uh, music in Northern Canada uh, that way, much less the... Uh, younger musicians that you influence as an educator in the mm-hmm. schools, either directly or, or indirectly. So, I mean, it's one heck of a legacy you've got here, Bill. It's really amazing to hear all of this, because I think one of the first times I met you, I was playing with Sandy Wilson and Colin Bergen in the hoist room. That's, you, uh, you, that's in
1: my notes here. I was going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. You just
0: stopped in and pulled out your horn, and it was just like, oh my God, this is such a treat.
1: I did want to add that I was always mindful of not pushing my kids to be musicians or feel that they had to join my choir or band or that sort of thing. I was careful of that. And I think in the end it worked out because they love music and they just, they love to do gigs. And, you know, I, I gave them opportunities which they took and I taught them in a way which was gentle. Although I have to laugh because I saw Jay in a concert at NAC on, it was on TV this week where he said, yeah, we used to have this family band, and my dad would trot us out every once in a while to sing, <laughs> like he resented it. <laughs> but it's funny, I don't remember him resenting it at all. I mean, they seemed happy enough to sing. We'd sing Christmas carols in three-part harmony.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, geez, and, and look where it caught him, <laughs> eh?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that you get out there and you play with Leela once in a while and that was a beautiful video you guys did up at Pilot's Monument there last year. I was just really take, taken with that. That's very nice.
0: Your daughter is at the top of her game. She's uh, she's just burning and uh, man, can't wait to see what she comes up with next. It's an honour to work with her and to uh, uh, interpret her songs and her music that way. She's uh Complete professional and treats me the same, something I always look forward to playing with her. Oh, that's awesome. This has just been wonderful to hear your musical life story, Bill. And not to say that I was sort of counting the minutes or anything like that, but I mean, you know, easily the first 45 minutes, almost to an hour, was spent in Ontario and your experience there that you brought up to the north here as well. And these stories are are just really epic, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, all the time that you've given me here, Bill, for sure, and, uh, no and and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I would like to thank Bill for sharing his rich musical life story with Musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate on our website at MusiciansOfTheMidnightSun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting this podcast series, and to thank the NWT Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories, Department of Education, Culture and Employment, and the Yellowknife Community Foundation for supporting the website so far. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection, at the NWT archives. I'm Pat Braden, thanks for listening.